Hello, everyone. Chris Martinson here of Peak Prosperity with another edition of Finance University. We are so pleased today to be bringing you and having a conversation finally with somebody who I've been following for a long time, Daniel Lacaille. Daniel, welcome so much to the program. Good to have you here. Thank you so much, Chris. It's a great pleasure. Uh, looking forward to it. Thank you very much for having me. Well, let, let's start here. Uh, as we're recording this here today, uh, there, there's some stuff going on in the markets, but um, really, I think let's start with bonds if we could, because you know what the old saying is, stocks are for show, but bonds are for dough, a lot of dough in the bond markets. Where do we rewind? You know where, you know what, you know where I, I, I lost track of how this was all working out? I didn't understand this. Maybe you can help us understand this. In 2019, you would read these mysterious headlines that said, $18 trillion of negative yielding debt. <laughs> I was just looking at that. I'm like, how is this not going to result in just massive losses? Daniel, how, how do, what happened and how do we, how do we explain negative yielding debt, let alone that much of it? Okay. Uh, obviously you were right to think that that was going to explode and it did. No, uh, it's a good old bubble. Uh, only that this time, instead of being a real estate or a tech bubble, it was a sovereign bond bubble. Um, what happened was uh, very simple and at the same time significantly more complicated than what it may appear. Uh, first, central banks started to bring down interest rates dramatically. In the case of Japan and in the case of the Eurozone, interest rates were went to negative territory. In the case of the Eurozone, negative nominal rates, i.e. Uh, banks were basically being paid and governments were being paid to borrow. Mm -hmm. um, so what happened was the following. The narrative that was built over and over in the market was the following. Hey, central banks are printing money and there's no inflation. We have to bring down interest rates and there's no inflation. There is no risk of inflation. This time is different. And this time wasn't different. Hmm? So obviously 18 trillion in negative yield in bonds means 18 trillion in massively overpriced bonds. Yeah? Why do investors purchase negative yielding bonds? They believe that because there is a deflationary environment, even with massive money printing, it is better to lend to a government and put $100 and get 99 back 10 years later rather than suffering the risks of a market that may lose a lot in a deflationary environment. Furthermore, because central banks were purchasing, particularly the European Central Bank and the Bank of Japan, monster amounts of sovereign bonds, they were purchasing more than 100% of what governments were issuing. Think about this, net issuances. Think about what, what the building of a bubble. No? Mm -hmm. So investors think the following. Okay, central banks are going to purchase these bonds no matter what. And the, the yield is negative. But because the central bank is going to purchase them all no matter what, the price of the bond is going to compensate me for the negative yield. So I may lose on the yield, but the price is so it's going to trade well above 
par uh, in uh, any environment. Mm -hmm. Move uh, fast forward to 2020, and first they say, hey, inflation is transitory. Hey, inflation is because of the Ukraine war. Hey, uh, it's uh, because of supply chain disruptions. Whoops, inflation is not transitory. It's not because of supply chain disruptions. It's not because it's because of good old massive money printing. So central banks do what they were saying that they would not do. And this is the important part, okay? Because until uh, May um, 2020, basically, and from 20, all throughout 2021, the European Central Bank was saying inflation has absolutely nothing to do with monetary conditions. Therefore, we're not going to change our policy. So the bubble in bonds continue to build. Mm -hmm. Sorry if I'm getting if I'm, I'm I'm giving the long story, but ultimately what happened and what happens is that when inflation comes. All those people that have purchased those bonds, expecting the price to offset the negative yield, all those people that have expected deflation with massive money printing, all those people that have expected central banks not to increase rates, find themselves with monster nominal and real losses in their portfolios. So they have to unwind their sovereign bond portfolios and 2022 happens, and in 2022, we have the worst year of bonds in 60 years, the bursting of a bubble. Then, because it seems that nobody learns, and the, and the, 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 the human being is the only animal that, that, uh, for, that gets trapped in the same, on the same, on the same uh, uh, problem twice. In 2023, what was the narrative all over the market? Buy bonds. This is going to be the year of bonds. Inflation it has been contained. Central banks are going to start cutting rates in the second half of the year. So this is going to be the year of bonds. It's a tremendous opportunity. Buy bonds, despite the fact that inflation remained persistent. So fast forward to now we are in October 2023. Central banks are not uh, unwinding their interest rate hikes. They're keeping them. Uh, inflation is persistent. And those bonds that were purchased throughout 2023 are also loss-making. So it's, the, it's, it's the good, a good old uh, burst of a bubble. And what a bubble, though. I mean, $18 trillion of negative yielding uh, debt. Uh, you know, I've seen a... I'm looking at a chart I have off of Bloomberg says that the collective value of global bonds has gone from about 70 trillion to about 60 trillion, about 10 trillion in losses across one sector of, of the bond market out there, right? It's not all the debt outstanding, but it's it's a good chunk of it. So um who's so that 10 trillion, that's on somebody's books, right? Who whose books is that on? Do we know? Oh, this is yeah. Oh, this is destroying the uh, savings of pensioners, who are usually the most, uh, uh, let's say, conservative, and the ones that usually purchase uh, or or have portfolios with a lot of sovereign bonds. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and it's certainly hurting a lot of those uh, traditional 60-40 portfolios, 60% uh, uh, bonds, 40% equities. No, so it's 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 that is that is literally destruction of money. There is destruction of wealth happening for a lot of people that were probably on the most conservative side of the of the investment spectrum because if you think about it markets are booming on the on the other side on the equity side but in the S&P 500 the entire improvement of in markets in 2023 has been generated by seven stocks the other 493 are doing virtually nothing. No, so um, and those seven stocks are actually the most aggressive, uh, the most technically and uh, risk uh, uh, risky uh, assets. No technology stocks. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, what is uh, it's basically what is going on is that uh, all of that uh, exuberance about the bond market and about governments and not just governments but also uh, investment grade issuers in the eurozone because of negative interest rates there were a lot of very safe uh, traditional large companies that uh, telecom companies autos companies uh, those those sort of let's say traditional businesses that were able to issue bonds at 0% at minus 0.1% so it was pretty insane i mean the the austrian government issued a 100 year bond that is collapsing in the market right now mm -hmm. huh? at at no real yield so think about it somebody out there was actually thinking Two things. One, that the deflationary environment was going to last for a hundred years, which is a pretty long bet, to be fairly honest. No, if you consider the, the history of money. Second, it was assuming that the increase in price of that bond was going to compensate for the loss of the of the yield in an environment of market volatility which because let's remember market volatility was already quite evident before uh before the covid uh, the covid uh, scapegoat i always call it no because where everything is prior and and post covid no mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well i'm old enough to remember daniel uh that argentina got away with this eight and three quarter percent bonds hundred year bonds somebody Absolutely. bought them i think it was it was like 3x oversubscribed according to the article i read at the time and i was like this is insane because argentina defaults on those things about every eight or nine years or so i mean it was just who would who's who's actually who bought them somebody bought them well What's um the 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 traditional purchaser of uh sovereign bonds is there are some that have to purchase them even if uh, because they have because they have to have a certain weight in in the sovereign bond, which makes no sense to me. But hey, you know that's that I'm not going to 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 question that. But in the case of Argentina, that was pretty crazy because you have to remember that Argentina had just came had just uh, uh, started to come out of a monster default and uh, uh, hyperinflation problem very few years prior that the populist government that left the government uh, had had a hidden 
increase in money supply, i.e. more printing of money in the central bank that exceeded 12% of GDP. So it's, I don't know if you know, if the, the people that, that are watching us know it, but the populist government in, uh, in, in Argentina, it did not only printed massive uh, amounts of money with the central bank, but also left a massive amount of remunerated debt at the central bank, which basically is, uh, uh, is, mm. is printing money for the, in the future. Mm. So when the new government came, which was a conservative uh, government, there was some sort of view that everything was going to change rapidly. And you need more than confidence in a new government to change these massive monetary imbalances. So the 100-year the bond in Argentina was three and a half times oversubscribed, three and a half times. And the, and the rationale was, was that if Argentina is paying 8.5% or 8.3%, 8 I believe, I don't remember exactly, 8.3% uh, yield, oh, that is going to be phenomenal in a world of 0% yield, uh, no risk debt. Yeah, well, there you go. It's, uh, it's, it's been a massive disaster, no? Oh, and, and predictably so. So I, I'm going to file all of this under, you know, here, here's my operative framework. Um, 1987 happens. There's a, you know, very scary moment. So Alan Greenspan rides to the market's rescue. 1994, there's a little hiccup in the corporate bond market. That's okay, because he gave us the sweep programs, which allowed central banks to have effectively a zero or banks to have a zero reserve requirement. Ooh, and we had the, the roaring 90s, but oops, there was a 1998 hiccup that required a little bailout. So these, my, my model for this, Daniel, is like, it's like we had a little oversteer, a little correction. The Fed's been getting more and more and more interventionist to the point you get Bernanke with his 1% blowout rate forever. And then, you know, you got, you know, um, Bern you know Bernanke goes into Yellen and then into uh, Jay Powell. And Jay Powell is the guy who actually has to try and clean this up. But this is decades of interventionism, which led to this narrative that the Fed can always ride to the rescue. Uh, are people yeah. wrong for thinking that, you know, that that's just the, that's the world we live in and they'll rescue us again? Well, um, people look at history and think that this has been going on forever and therefore this is what it is. But this is not what it is. We're talking about such a small period of time in monetary history that, yeah. you know, I call it the mistake of presentism in one of my books, no? Is that we think that what is happening right now has happened forever and that therefore, if there is an anomaly, uh, it's going to go on forever. Well, it doesn't, no? And, it, and we have to remember a few things, no? Uh, throughout all that period of monetary expansion and, and craziness that we have lived, central banks were purchasing assets, mortgage-backed securities, sovereign bonds, that generated a profit. That profit went back to the uh, to 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 the, the public accounts as a uh, as a return to uh, like a tax receipt, no? And it's sort of disguised the uh, the elements of risk that were created. Number of things that are different right now. So for those people that think that everything's going to be bailed out again by the central banks. Number one, central banks are loss-making. Hmm? Huge, hmm. hugely loss-making. Okay, so it's not the same. It's not the same when you purchase an asset where there's some level of reserve for the central bank. Ultimately, for people that are watching us, for a central bank purchasing a sovereign bond is, is an asset, no? It's not debt, it's an asset, no? But if that asset is loss-making, then 
inflation creeps up because the other side of the balance sheet, which is money, uh, needs to go up even in an environment of of, uh, uh, of of problems like the one that we are living right now, either through tax collection or through inflation. It doesn't matter. Um, so the problem right now is first, central banks are loss making. Second, inflation is persistent. Inflation is not transitory. I find it, I still find it hilarious to to hear people say the inflation number came better than expected and this means that the central bank is going to cut rates no it doesn't actually no. <laughs> uh, and third and more uh, and I think more important than all of those is that even if central banks decided to return to expansionary monetary policy, we have to remember that expansionary monetary policy works in markets at the margin, i.e. when it is a surprise, not when everybody is expecting it. If you think about that, um, for example, the uh, European Central Bank monetary expansion, quantitative easing, actually didn't work very well for stocks. Hmm? Uh, they continued to underperform European stocks. Banks actually fell, obviously, because of negative rates, etc. So people have to be extremely prudent about the idea that as the central bank is going to bail us out of a bad investment decision. Hmm? Because as we have seen throughout the last uh, uh, years, the central bank does not necessarily do it. Furthermore, the central bank may inject liquidity and not generate uh, a return to profit of the investment that people have undertaken, as we have seen, for example, after the Silicon Valley Bank uh, collapse, when uh, central bank immediately injected liquidity, the Fed, and there was, it did not generate uh, a massive level of, of performance in bonds or equities, as I mentioned before, the S&P 500 has risen, but because of seven stocks. This is, this is the important thing. Yeah. So uh, if we look at this, um, I, I, rock in a hard place. So, so I, I let, let's go slightly longer term. So August 15th, 1971, we decouple from the gold standard. If we had prudent management, maybe it would be different. But um, you know, Jay Powell was asked by Cynthia Loomis in a Senate hearing. She's like, hey, is, is our debt a problem? He goes, not the absolute amount, but the fact that the debt's rising at a much faster rate than GDP, that becomes a problem. And so that we've had this failure to observe and moderate that for a long time, decades, right? And so now we have a condition where debt has been growing at and compounding at a rate twice as fast as the underlying economy. And that's just creating this gap. If the Federal Reserve allows that to sort of go into deflation, I'm thinking that's like the Great Depression on steroids, right? Because it's just so much debt that you how you, you know how can you let that collapse without or or deflate without that becoming its own you know whirlpool of of despair. The other side of that coin, though, is you got to keep that game going. Where do you see them? I know they're going to try and split the difference. Can they? But but if they can't, which direction do you see them defaulting to? Central banks always default to financial depression, repression, not uh, <laughs> which, uh, which, yeah. you know, we, we many, many times we discuss whether central banks are doing their, the wrong job or are doing things incorrectly or don't understand. Central banks are doing things exactly the way that they actually always do, which is to try to 
uh, which is to move to be the financer of first resort and to allow governments to finance their deficit at a relatively, and this is the key, relatively low price. Hmm? Because the central, the, the Fed is not concerned about the 10-year yield being at 4.6% with inflation at 5. Hmm? The Fed is concerned if the US government would have to finance itself at a price that is higher than what the uh, private economy is. So if mortgages are at six and a half percent and I don't know, high yield is at uh, 5.8, for example, I'm not giving uh, actual rates, no? Then, they're, then they're, mm -hmm. they don't worry, i.e. what the Fed and, the, and any central bank tries to do is to <clears throat> maintain the uh, relative benefit of sovereign debt in terms of financing relative to other assets. And in the particular case that we're living right now, unfortunately for those that are expecting a bubble, the Fed can only, de only do what it is doing right now hmm? because of, of what you just mentioned. No, hmm? The level of, uh, this is the first time in history in which in an inflationary burst, public expenditure and deficit spending are actually uh, rising instead of falling. Hmm? Usually in, a, in an inflationary burst, governments spend less, families spend less, uh, uh, businesses borrow less, and all of that reduces the inflation huh? and uh, allows to the economy to, to absorb the imbalances created in the past. But this is the first inflationary burst in many, many years in which governments are not just not reducing their deficit, but implementing stimulus packages, which is insane. So the Federal Reserve is trying to contain inflation and the government is trying to create inflation, although they obviously don't say it. They call it anti-inflation act. It is not an anti-inflation act. If you're subsidizing yeah. consumption, you're not, you don't have an anti-inflation. You have a pro-inflation act, no? So uh, that is a big problem. And, come, and, and coming back to your point, it's a much larger problem because the rate of growth of debt is much larger than the rate of growth of the economy. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. is the biggest challenge going forward. So, um, the Federal Reserve, like the European Central Bank, will ultimately prefer persistent inflation than government uh, risk of default. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, um, obviously, I think, you know, the Federal Reserve, other central banks, they look, they're going to keep doing what they do until there's some sort of a forcing function that comes upon them. I'm not clear if I'm seeing a forcing function out of the bond markets right now because there's some very interesting popping and creaking sounds coming out of a variety of government markets, but also at the edges. Um, you know, there was a lot of yield chasing and we had junk bonds with a four handle, you know, crazy stuff. Um, but the one thing that I think is out of their hands is the price of oil. And I see over your your shoulder there, one of your books, The, the Energy World is Flat. Um, and, and I want to talk now about the possibility that Oil's might my candidate for the thing that is you have to have it and you can't really control it. Now, they tried with dishoarding the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. That was the first time in my life that a president 
or a presidential team was uh, day trading the price of oil, driving it down. Remember, they're going to buy it back at 70 to $72 a barrel. Oops. You know, they haven't refilled a single drop of it overall uh, after they disordered a little more last week. And, um, and and so oil's now at 90. So, so and, it, you know, we've got all kinds of things going on in this story. But but let's talk now about oil supply demand. You know, where do you see the story of oil right now? Well, uh, developed economies have been extremely imprudent in their policy relative to oil, as you have just mentioned with the U.S. government and the and the SPR, no, um, for a very uh, for a monetary reason. Oil prices in May 22 reached a peak of around 120 dollars a barrel. Mm -hmm. Then, when the Fed started to hike rates the monetary phenomenon kicked in and with rate hikes and monetary contraction all commodities collapsed to uh, prices below the levels at which they were trading prior to the ukraine invasion so between may 22 and may 23 you had an you had a move in commodity prices including wheat copper you name it all of the commodity complex collapsed because of a monetary phenomenon. Rate hikes means less money in the system. It's more expensive to uh, buy long positions in commodities, more expensive to buy freight, to purchase freight, to uh, store, et cetera, et cetera. So oil prices collapsed to May 23, but the underlying supply and demand scenario was getting tighter. Mm -hmm. And governments did not pay attention to that. Governments paid attention to the price, to the spot price. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the, uh, the underlying uh, environment of supply and demand was getting tighter because on the one hand, you had supply cuts from OPEC plus, Saudi Arabia and Russia. You had <clears throat> challenges in non-OPEC supply because of the underinvestment that had been going on for years in the non-OPEC countries, the United States and uh, North Sea, etc. This completely lunatic decision to stop investing in oil uh, before there is a real alternative. No? So Thank supply you. challenge, supply challenge and demand had been contained by China slowing down. But, chi but China starts to build up and starts to recover. So demand starts to go up while supply is more challenged and the monetary phenomenon stops working in favor of spot prices. And in May 23, all those effects come to play, as you've just mentioned. And the oil prices start to go up, supply tightness is more evident, demand improvement is more evident, and Central banks are not hiking rates and not reducing money supply. So mm, suddenly there is flow into commodities and an underlying supply demand trend that justifies the move. Mm -hmm. So oil prices can overshoot in that environment, mm -hmm. unless, and I don't think it's going to happen for what we have discussed just a few minutes ago, unless suddenly the Fed starts to hike rates massively and cut its balance sheet, which I don't think is going to happen. So oil prices can overshoot, and they would only come back with a massive destruction of demand, which tends to kick in at around the 120, 125 level. That 
that is very evident where you start to see that that level of destruction of demand. Well, so let's talk about this from a fundamental standpoint, because we, we know the United States, however it did it, managed to lose Saudi Arabia as a as a core geopolitical asset. <laughs> they seem to be yeah. turned a little bit to the east, uh, let, we'll say. Um, but meanwhile, the environment. So we're talking to you. You're in London. So in the UK, you've got people like spray painting, you know, storefronts and gluing their hands to roadways. Uh, all of which sort of, you know, has to weigh in on corporate board decisions somewhere. So it's the, you know, we're we're seeing this. We need a lot of investment in oil and gas to make up for these shortfalls, which come from a whole thing. Where, you know, we had the collapse of oil prices through 2015. No offshore is really being prosecuted right now. Very, very little relative to what we need. Uh, and as well, we're even seeing, you know, the U.S. shale play. They, they've got, uh, let's say, financial uh diligence is returned to their operations so they're no longer chasing uh the production stuff on and on and on i can make a case that that we're we're going to be facing a very supply constrained environment and i've been pounding on that for a while and finally goldman sachs came out or jp morgan came out and said oh looks like we're going to have a seven million barrel per day shortfall by 2030 like this should have sent up alarm bells everywhere because there's no such thing as a seven million barrel a day shortfall there's only a price that uh, destroys enough demand to make that happen right this yeah, looks alarming exactly. to me from a from a price standpoint and the fed can't control that there's no combination of money printing and interest rates that are going to prevent that shortfall i don't think only only seven and a half percent interest rates and uh the the federal reserve's balance sheet at uh 15 percent of gdp but that, <laughs> that's not good news for the market or for the economy, if you say, if you know. So, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. The, you know, in 2022, developed economies uh, took for granted the artificial tailwind of very low commodity prices in the middle of a huge geopolitical change and massive supply demand shortages and and to be fairly honest everybody that had a little bit of understanding of the supply demand scenario from uh food to oil was telling these governments you are counting with a disinflationary process that is only going to last while central banks reduce money supply and um and cut rates, but the moment that that they stop, it's going to come back viciously, and it did. Mm -hmm. So, um, so the Fed cannot control this. Furthermore, it cannot. It, you know, the May twenty-two abrupt change in <clears throat> interest rates was not just the Fed; it was a hundred and eighty central banks at the same time mm -hmm, raising rates. Think mm -hmm. about this. 180 central banks raising rates means that there's an immediate shock in financial demand for commodities, in long positions, in uh, hedges, in margin calls. Mm -hmm. So all of that, that is not going to happen. That is not going to come back. So I think that the, the problem right now is that you may find an environment in which inflation is persistent in core inflation, while energy inflation remains elevated because of what we're discussing. And um, 
and the tools that central banks had announced for a so-called soft landing don't work. Hmm? Because I tell you, if it by right now, even if the Fed decides to hike rates by 25 basis points, that's not enough. Hmm? Obviously, oil prices are are uh, traded in dollars, and that's an important factor. But that is not enough. What we need is a shock like the one that we had in May 22, in which you have suddenly, abruptly, and in unison, the European Central Bank, Bank not, not the Bank of Japan goes on its own, uh, the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, the Fed, uh, the Bank of Canada, to, 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 all of them at the same time, slashing uh, access to cheap money. And that's not going to happen. No, I no, probably not. Um, because for the Fed to actually reduce its balance sheet, which they've just been letting run off. So for people listening, that, that means that the Fed isn't selling any of its assets per se. It's just allowing them to mature. And then it's not repurchasing them like a mortgage-backed security or treasury. They would actually have to begin selling. Um, and who's going to be doing all that buying? So let's talk about these rising interest rates for a moment because I've had my concerns. So the big three on my table, China, Japan, Saudi Arabia are all selling treasuries right now. Daniel, who's yeah. buying them? Well, obviously there is a second there's a, there's a second marginal buyer uh, in an environment like the one that we're seeing in Japan. The Japanese yen is weakening dramatically. The euro is weakening dramatically. The yuan as well. So, what is strengthening the U.S. dollar? is that there are marginal buyers of US treasuries as a way of buying US dollars mm -hmm. as a way of uh, as a, in fact it's not even buying it's unwinding because if you think about the world if you if you think about the market the market in its entirety is one gigantic bet against the US dollar if you look at it from a long short perspective i come from citadel no you're long whatever short the dollar. That is the market hmm? globally. So when the market, the bond market starts to crumble, ultimately the what is going down is also is 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 unwinding a negative bet on the US dollar. That's why with the US shutdown crisis and with all the things that we're discussing, the dollar instead of falling is actually strengthening. No, hmm? because it's in the world, in the market, it's I always say that the dollar is in a fire, the building with the largest number of windows and doors. No, so mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that there is a let's say conscious long-term investment in the U.S. Treasury as a safe asset that generates a, uh, a, a good return, but a relative unwinding of a, uh, a beta-hedged bet if, if people, so very high exposure to the uh, short side, to the short duration side of the market. And I think that that ultimately, <clears throat> does not generate more confidence in the United States Treasury or in, in the US dollar is simply a, uh, let's say, a reversal of a bullish bet on other assets. Yeah, I've, I've uh, this sounds like a larger thing than what I've tried to explain it 
to my followers, which is the the unwinding of a carry trade, which is just a very easy sort yeah. of a structural thing to understand. Like, like if if Japan's debt's yielding zero percent ish, right? Well, I'll borrow in yen, and then I'll go buy U.S. Treasuries for at least yielding one and a half or two percent. I carry the interest on that, you know, and 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 so that means that I had to, um, you know, do a whole series of currency trades, and you know, I'm buying things. But when that unwinds, the dollar will go up because ultimately I, I have to pay that back. So I need dollars. You know, I'm going to buy dollars yeah. so I can settle my U.S. my U.S. part of that story. So so what we're really seeing is just decades of financialization, right? And and so um, the this has sort of come to head. So this is this is my main complaint. I think the central banks broke markets. If a market is defined as a place where buyers and sellers engage in the practice of price discovery. And of my evidence for that is that when I look at, if I stripped off the legends and the titles, I can't tell the difference between the movements of the DAX, the, the you know, the FTSE, uh, S&P, Dow. They're all, they're all the same chart, tick for tick, five of minute timeframe, a monthly time. Frame, they're all the same chart. Right. That doesn't look like price discovery anymore. You know, why should German stock market be trading tick for tick with U.S. technology shares? It's a weird thing to me. Uh, well, it is. It is a weird thing to you. And it's a, and it is a very dangerous thing because <clears throat> you hear all the time everywhere that market this market that. But when do you have an overriding force like a central bank that is making constantly uh yeah we can say manipulating the price of the allegedly lowest risk asset then everything else is hugely manipulated no so mm. people that say well you know i'm a i'm a low risk investor so i'm going to buy bonds uh receive the shock of seeing that bonds are hugely correlated with stocks which when they should not be the reason why people think that a 60-40 portfolio is a good bet is because when markets go down, bonds protect you. And when markets go up, you get some uh, a return from equities. Now, in an environment in which when central banks are doing this enormous intervention all the time, what happens is that mark is the stocks and bonds do this in unison. And therefore, you lose a lot of money in a down market and you lose a lot of money in an up market because because you're constantly uh, outside of the range where new money generates the highest return. So it's a, it, it, what you're saying is a very important and it's a huge problem, by the way, is a huge problem because market is supposed to be about the, the 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 different views about prices price discovery you said which i think is a perfect perfect definition and there's no price discovery and that is why investors say you know what i'm not gonna say i'm not gonna do any fundamentals and any fundamentals i'm gonna buy an etf close my eyes because central banks are gonna bail me out of any bad investment decision and that is what's dangerous is that you constantly uh what this is creating is, for example, the almost impossibility of a small company that decides to float, to thrive, and people discover it, and therefore it becomes a large. So when the market rises, it is the multi-billion megacaps that benefit. That's why the S&P 500 is up 
G27 stocks. And when markets collapse, it's, it's precisely because of the same reason. But the, but in the it, it, throughout the entire process, it is the what happens ultimately is that artificial money creation is never neutral. It always disproportionately benefits the first recipient of money, which is which are the ones that already have assets and the ones that already have debt, and disproportionately negatively impacts the last recipients, which are real wages and deposit savings. Yeah, it's uh, mm -hmm. the social dynamic of this is is very unpleasant. Um, so let's let's turn now very quickly to excuse me so germany right um without wading mm. into uh what's actually going on you know from a from a geopolitical standpoint ukraine germany i think rather unwisely sort of blundered forward into a an, a situation where they have a uh their prosperity comes from very energy intensive industries and they're doing important value add stuff you're taking aluminum and casting it into engine blocks and selling beamers uh glass ceramics all that stuff right so they, they they get into this thing where their main energy supplier is no longer supplying them energy. And now we're seeing what to me feels, again, like it ought to be above the fold headline talked about constantly, something like a 20% reduction in their energy intensive industries. To me, this is everything, Daniel. This is the source of prosperity. All the rest is window dressing. Somebody still has to take earth and turn it into a thing, you know? And, and that's yeah. what Germany really did as the engine of Europe. It, it's... I'm just shocked at how fast it's unwinding with BASF opening up a plant in Louisiana. I mean, it's just like the, there's all this industry is fleeing Germany, but it's, the Germans are pretending, or at least leadership, is pretending like, I don't know what, that this isn't really as big a deal. Am I making too much of it? Or or how do you see that situation? I, I you know, I am amazed at how irresponsible and childish the political environment is in Germany. Let's start from what you said very, very, very well. The decision to depend on Russian gas was not a coincidence, a mistake, or uh, or something that happened, you know, by chance. It was a policy. It was a policy. It was a way of exactly doing what you just said. It was let's come, let's increase commerce and uh, activity with Russia. We're going to get a huge benefit from abundant and <clears throat> affordable energy supply, which is going to be to make our uh, industries hugely competitive, and therefore uh, that is going to be the engine of growth of the economy. And it was, and it was. The problem is that when the sanctions and when all these uh, issues with with uh, with the Ukraine war uh, start, the problem is threefold. First, it started earlier than that. Deciding to shut down the nuclear fleet in Germany was the most stupid political decision ever made. When you have fifty six nuclear reactors by the border with France. So who was the politician in Germany that they're supposed to be so so cold and so technocratic? Who was the idiot in Germany that thought that if there was a nuclear reactor problem in France, the, 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 the radiation would stop at the border? No? It doesn't make any sense. Furthermore, it was created 
it was a decision made by something that had absolutely nothing to do with any problem ever generated in Europe. It was the Fukushima accident, which had nothing to do with what happened uh, anywhere in Europe. We haven't had nuclear accidents in Europe. No, uh, the, 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 the French nuclear fleet is hugely safe, uh, the German one as well. The nuclear accidents in Europe were Chernobyl, which was a central planning nightmare made in, in the Russian, uh, the Soviet Union. And the Fukushima accident was a uh, was a was a was an earthquake. No, mm-hmm. so for, uh, to so that was a problem. But okay, you've already made the mistake. You've already depend increased your dependence on Russian gas. Then there is a the Ukraine war and things change and there are uh, there's an embargo on Russia, etc., etc., etc. And I'm in shock when I read that the first decision of the government is to shut down the six nuclear terminals that were still operating. So this is the problem of politicians, is that they decide one thing, and despite the evidence of the mistake, they just soldier on with something that is a disaster. And today, Germany, after more than $200 billion of subsidies to renewables, is consuming coal so much that in the chart, in the official chart, they have to separate coal from lignite, which is the same, so that it doesn't look so blatantly unbelievable. It's about 40% of their energy mix. It's such an example of policy disaster that once a crisis comes, instead of changing it, you simply decide to double down the bet that is going to be very difficult for the German industry to recover from this. Because those industries that are going to the United States, those industries that are going to India, those industries that are going to Vietnam, they're not coming back to Germany. There is no such thing as reshoring in the European Union. There is no reshoring whatsoever. It's a it's an invention created by politicians. There is no evidence whatsoever because by the moment that you move the factory to another country, it's not just the energy cost. It's not just the production cost. It's all of the administrative burdens and all the tax burdens that you simply cannot decide to unwind that movement decision. Huge, huge mistake. Oh, thank you for putting it all that way, because I agree completely. And I'll fair warning to anybody from Germany listening. I'll tell you what happens because the United States is dotted with these places, which used to be a coal mining town, but the coal mine shut down or it was a mill town and the mill shut down or it was a steel town and the steel mill shut down. They never come back or at least, uh, you know, not in my lifetime. I mean, they've once that decline happens, it just that's your new low state. It just stays that way. You know, um, it's absolutely evident in 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 Europe everywhere. No, not just not just Germany. This is not just a problem with Germany. It's happening in Holland. It's happening in Spain. It's happening in 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 many countries. It's it's this. It's I don't know. You know, the European Union used to be about. Uh, debate and about uh, reaching a consensus, a challenging consensus within that debate. You can argue whether it was successful or not, but there was debate. Now it's about dogma. 
and it just and it's just not working whatsoever. I mean, the eurozone is in recession in the middle of the largest stimulus package implemented in the last fifteen years. It's just it's just not not working. Well, I, I'm wondering how we get out of this. Um, you know, so feel free to speculate a bit. I've been calling this a mind virus, right? So, so here, here, let me tell you. So, it's state of New York, next state over from where I am. Uh, they just said recently they they passed legislatively, somehow made it through all their legislation that they're going to limit gas peaker plants, and and they put a bunch of burdens so that they will eliminate where I think their fifty percent of their electricity growth was going to come from going forward because they need more. There's reasons. And so they just said, no, we're not going to do that. And they very specifically, Daniel, they said they're doing this to incentivize the green energy growth, right? So I call this the um, the Cortez burn your boat strategy, right? You know, they sail across an ocean, 600, you know, sailing weary guys get off, you know, somewhere in Peru. And they're like, geez, let's go home. So Cortez burns the boats. Like, I guess we have to go forward now, right? So New York has said, we're just going to burn our boats. And somehow this green revolution will now more magically arise because we've created the conditions for that. Literally, that's what they said. And yeah. all they have to do is look at Germany, pick up the phone, read a couple articles and go, how's that working? Yeah. There's like, it's like, there's like realities going this direction and these people are going that way. I don't, I don't know how to square that. I don't know how to put these pieces back together, but I'm predicting really bad times coming because when they finally wake up to an unstable electrical grid in a few years, they're going to say, we got to fix that, but it's whew, time, cost, yeah. money, expertise. There's a lot of things that have to be in place for that to-, to Oh, absolutely. Very hard to undo yeah. that damage. It's not just very hard to undo. And this is what worries me the most, is that these people are not stupid. Hmm? And they know that what they're doing is- uh, is damaging the energy transition and it's damaging security of supply and affordability. How do you square all those challenges with disruption of supply, with uh, rationa uh, rationing, rationing supply to, to citizens, limiting citizen freedom? So mm. this, this is the problem. Hmm? Uh, an energy transition, as I explain in my book, uh, to all of those that are watching, an energy transition has always happened in history because the alternative is more affordable, easier to store, and uh, more abundant, okay? Cheaper, abundant, easier to store. All of those things, technology, innovation, etc., may bring us to the point where uh, some renewable technologies will be more affordable, uh, more easy to store, and certainly more abundant, and others will not. But you need technology innovation, uh, uh, creative destruction, and time, and some time, okay? In the meantime, nobody that's mildly serious decides to shoot themselves in the foot by eliminating the sources of, of energy that give you the abundant and affordable supply that you require in the transition. A transition is a transition, okay? And a politician does not decide the transition. It's industry, it's competition, it's innovation, all of those things. So when governments decide to artificially limit 
access to natural gas, access to nuclear, access to oil. What they do is not accelerate the transition, which is going on its own on its own path and it and it has its ups and downs. What they do is make their economies more dependent on those sources of energy that they seem to reject, like Germany is more dependent on coal, like uh, Spain and Italy are now more dependent on Russian gas than they were prior to the Ukraine invasion. This is insane. Mm-hmm. I mean, Spain is 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 importing more natural gas from Russia than ever. Huh? All those things, instead of, uh, you see, central planning and intervention achieve the opposite of what they aim to defend. Hmm? And you cannot also, and there's another problem. Let's assume that you that that you want to accelerate the energy transition and, and investment in renewables. Well, guess what? You're not going to achieve it if, at the same time, you put limits to mining in rare earths. You put my mining uh, limitations on lithium. You put mining limitations on copper. You put mining limitations on all of the minerals that are required for those technologies. Is that they are they through policy. They are making themselves more dependent on the energy uh, technologies that they uh, ideologically hate because energy doesn't have an ideology. No? And at the same time, they're not accelerating that renewable transition. It is virtually, it is, there is no possibility to achieve net zero the way that politicians have announced without multiplying by eight to 10 times the mining in essential in essential metals and minerals and and they're limiting that as well because that their their environmental policies are also limiting that so what is happening in the european union is that it's going from depending on russian gas to depending on russian gas and china this is amazing but daniel you started this by saying that they're not stupid, right? But They're these policies, stupid. clearly you can't square them up with reality. They, they So if you put those two statements yeah. together, uh, it sounds intentional. Like this looks like an intentional dismantling. So if that's the case, and maybe I'm, don't let me put words in your mouth, but if that's the case, what's the, if these aren't dumb people and they want to dismantle us, I know there's this whole let's build back better. First, you have to kind of break stuff. Well, what do you, what's going on here? What do you think is the, the well, plan? Or is there a plan? Well, I don't know if there is a plan, but the only way in, I, I don't I, I don't know if it's intentional, but the only way in which you square all those elements is rationing supply to citizens. The only way is mm-hmm. is by artificially artificially limiting demand. Because if if you're limiting supply, if you're limiting access to different technologies, et cetera, and it doesn't work because you enter into a massive problem of availability, then, and we saw it last winter, it didn't happen because it was a mild winter, but if it had been a cold winter in Europe, we would have seen rationing of uh, and 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 limits of supply to people. And that is, that is obviously uh, something that uh, if they want to test that, that is something that I would not recommend any democratic government to test because like we saw with lockdowns, that immediately generates a massive reaction. Citizens Mm -hmm. 
citizens don't give up individual freedom of uh you know you know taking my car for a for the weekend to the beach uh not in the uk but uh, <laughs> elsewhere no yeah. Yeah. um but but it's the but if you go back to the last time i was in davos the entire debate about energy was limiting energy consumption not limited not improving efficiency not improving technology it was that the narrative about the environment is so you know emergency they called it climate we have a climate emergency therefore you evil person should stop using these two lights that i have in front of me because you're hurting the planet no and mm -hmm. first it doesn't work now we all remember don't blow you don't 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 dry your hair with a blow dryer because it's going to destroy the the uh, the, the ozone layer it's bullshit but it it doesn't work but more importantly is that the only way in which you square that is with um supply restrictions now the the you mentioned the four most dangerous words in investing, which is this time it's different. We saw that burst in yeah. the bond bubble that has cost, you know, that that bad story uh, cost somebody trillions of dollars. Right now, the the narrative that I've got in the United States, which is very hard for me to get around, is people go, "Oh, we're Saudi America. We've got the shale oil. You know, it's, it's like a they treat it like it's a permanent condition." And then they glaze over mm. when I say, "But look, the Bakken is already past peak. The Haynesville's past peak. The Eagleford's past peak." The Barnett's past week, we really were down to not just the Permian, but we're down to two counties in the Permian, right? Montreal yeah. and Eddy, right? Counties. Where that's where all the supply growth is coming from. We're down to like just two counties and we're acting. The story we have is like, oh, but shale's this new thing, you know, because we were clever. Yeah. But it has a very easy, predictable decline rate. It's just simply a division problem. How many acres? How many acres per well? It's not a hard, you know, uh, equation to run. So we can see the end. The end, according to, um, you know, the analysts that I follow and tend to believe because they do it at the county, you know, lease level, about 2025, <clears> the Permian flattens, you know, um, yeah. and then, you know, it doesn't run out, but, you know, it's it's flat for a while. And then we start to nose over. So so we only have a couple years to sort this out um, mm -hmm. or we're going to have to find a way to get by on a lot less oil going forward or we're mm. going to have to get into a war with somebody over it. Right. Because, you know. Those are our options at this stage. Absolutely, and and there's you have outlined the decline rate of the shale, which is well known. Anybody that works in the energy industry, anybody that's that that's an engineer, knows that this you cannot, you don't create magic. You simply drill more wells, put more horizontal wells, and that improves production. But the the decline rate is the same. You're just adding. No, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you said it perfectly. No more acres. Uh, that's what you, that's what you do. So you have, on the one hand, the problem of underinvesting, underinvestment, uh, underinvestment, not just in shale, uh, which is not so much of a of a, a, a of a problem as in underinvestment in exploration and production in general all over the world. Mm -hmm. Think about this. Only, yeah, you know, two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten. Uh, I was when I was uh, in the investment world. I was doing research all the time in uh, in energy. 
the number of uh, discoveries that were announced in a you know in a normal year was was between 10 to 12 hmm? that's gone down to maybe one a year if it is a discovery because you know the last thing that we've heard of a discovery is something that was already discovered 10 years ago that just it's just made, made, been made more economical by uh, 95 90 dollar oil no so <clears throat> underinvestment natural decline and lack of uh and lack of vision about the different sources that can generate the 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 uh the improvement in in, in affordability and availability of of energy is 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 clearly one is this is what I, what angers me so much energy should not be about ideology there's no there's no reason to think that and it's stupid in Europe, no? Because in France, nuclear energy is very left-wing, and in and in Germany, nuclear energy is is, is very right-wing. It's it's just ridiculous, no? Um, but the thing is, what we don't seem to understand is that we are going to need it all. And I have I just came back from China, and at least I get the I don't know I get the idea that they at least understand that they need everything that they cannot afford to say, hmm, let's just shoot ourselves in the foot and stop using coal because, because we're going to need it as well as natural gas, as well as renewables, as well as nuclear. So they're not, they're, one thing does not reduce the other. And what I find in the United States is that um, the mirage generated in 2009 to 2011 with shale is is perceived as permanent, which is not. No, it's as you've just outlined that you're not going to see a giant decline, but a plateau. And you need more investment. You need more investment offshore. You need more investment in conventional oil. Everybody seems to have forgotten about conventional oil. No, so you know that's that is the problem. Well, uh, thank you for bringing up China because I, I did review for for my subscribers uh, China's energy policy. It's a five point plan. It made a lot of sense to me because I was reading it. I was like. Oh. You people mm. still can't think logically. It was it was brilliant, right? You know, they're going to mm. increase alternative energy by no more than one percent per year, right? Because you have to mm. integrate it into your grid, and it'll never be the central starring role. They said until you know some sort of storage system is worked out and battle tested, which made sense, right? Obviously, but I think number five on their plan was to say, wow, since we are going to be depending on importing so much oil, part of their energy strategy was to maintain good diplomatic relations with those countries they were going to be involved with. It was like, you know, it, it, it was just, it was very sensible. You know, it made a ton of sense to me. And then I find out, you know, I've been tracking this closely that China just permitted its first pilot plant for a thorium reactor, which is a different nuclear fuel cycle. And that's very exciting potentially, because if that works out, there's a lot of thorium, right? They, like, so I see them actively sort of constructively building towards the future. Rewind over here, you know, in the United States, you know, our, I think they're putting in a, what, a three reactor unit down in Georgia, wildly over, over budget, you know, it's just regulatory nightmare to get that going. And then the fewest amount of acres leased um, into uh, oil production, only two leases were sold out of the Gulf of Mexico, terminated the lease up in the Anwar, I think for Chevron. So all this oil stuff has been brought back and then, and then just to make it fun. Uh, Biden put um, the administration put a huge chunk of of national park 
uh, around the Grand Canyon into new national park um, designation, which turns out to also be uh, one of our best and, and largest uh, uranium deposits. So that's offline. So again, intentional or just ignorant, pick where you need to be. It doesn't matter to me in some respect because the outcome's the same. We are shooting yeah. both our feet from an energy policy standpoint here. Completely, completely. I mean, there are numerous things that I will not uh, defend about the Chinese regime, obviously, like nobody does, no? But at least they understand that there is no energy policy without security of supply, affordability, and respect for the environment. You have to have the three things. You cannot have one, just. And um, mm. I don't know how we learn from it. I don't know how we learn from it. It's it's just um, it's just very, very complicated because once it has become such, um, uh, such an ideologized uh, debate, it's impossible to have a serious discussion about uh, what the European Union requires in to, to, for its energy uh, demand, what the United States needs for its energy demand. I think that the, and you mentioned diplomatic relationships, absolutely critical, absolutely critical. What an ins who is the insane politician that decided to tell all of the developing nations that are energy producers, that are oil and gas producers, the following beautiful deal. Look, we are not going to use your product in 10 years. We are not going to accept your product in 10 years. We hate that product. However, until then, spend billions of dollars in developing and exploring and uh, putting that product in our ground and cheaply. I'm, I, I can, I'm, you know, how can anyone think that any commodity producer in the world is going to listen to the things that are, that are coming from the, the United States administration or from the European Union governments and say, oh, that's a great deal. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to buy that. No, we need to have we need to bring back industry and we need to bring, bring back competition to 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 drive it all. And and that would probably give us a lot of surprises. That will probably show us that if what we need is affordability and security of supply, probably we need to spend more in wind power than in solar instead of what is going on right now maybe you need you need to understand that you need to extend the life of nuclear terminals for another 10 to 15 years instead of just focusing on what you decided 10 years ago the same with oil and gas it's a transition you don't decide on when it changes well we would have to put people in charge and this is something that china does again not to say everything China does is great, but but they do put people in their leadership positions who actually are qualified for those positions. You know, the, the mm. energy secretary in the United States, Jennifer Granholm, uh, uniquely unqualified for that position, uh, you know, from a, from a, from a training <laughs> and an experience standpoint, right? You know, yeah, just because stands if you, because if you put, if, this is the problem, it's happening also in, in a few countries in Europe, no? If you put in, energy uh secretary of state or minister however you want to call it that is an activist 
an activist is never going to listen to industry because they think that industry is evil and they are trying to trick them. But they're not. No, industry is just trying to is just trying to deliver solutions from an engineering and from a and from a productive standpoint that is going to better the 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 accessibility of energy to people, and um, and it's a big pro. It it is a huge it is a huge 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 problem. It's a huge problem because it's impossible because it's impossible to debate in uh, in in the case of the I don't know how it is right now in the in the United States. But I remember that uh, two two years ago in in a, in a conference about energy in the United States, um, there were limits of what could be discussed. What? What do you mean there are limits? Why is there a limitation that you have uh, about discussing? We should not discuss about the uh, net zero policies. Why should we not discuss net zero policies? Net zero policies make no sense make no sense from an, from an industrial and from an environmental perspective. It's just something that has come up from the mind of someone that just simply does not understand the molecules of energy that move and the technology that is required and the mining that is required for each of the technologies. Yeah, very well said. And, and uh, maybe in a future one, we could go into the mining because, boy, there's a whole story there. Um, but as we wind up here, so as you look forward, uh, what what are you expecting? Oh, how do you see the market sort of playing out over the next year? What are you what are you anticipating here? I think that uh, I think that the the challenge for the bond market is going to remain. I think that the recent strength of the U.S. dollar is going to unwind as the fiscal challenges become more apparent mm -hmm. um and in general what i would suggest what i would suggest to any of the of the people that are watching is if you have a portfolio i always say that you have to look at a portfolio as a uh, you know as a soccer team you need to have a goalkeeper and you need to have defense you need to have gold you need to have precious metals those defend you from an environment of of weakening markets and you have to have um uh attackers no and those attackers need to be uh the the disruptive technologies that might help us square that cycle uh, regardless of what politicians destroy no mm -hmm. so Invest in disruptive technologies. Invest in um, a, more in equities, certainly, than in bonds. And more in commodities than in currencies. Well, fantastic, everybody. We've been talking with Daniel Lacaye. Daniel, how do people follow you out there in the world to uh, keep up with your amazing insights? I I have a, a, a website in which I publish all my articles. Uh, it's uh, dlacaye.com. And there's one in English, one in Spanish, also a YouTube channel, Daniel Lacalle in English. There's uh, my uh, Twitter account. My, I, I, I think it's easier to, to follow me than to avoid me, to be fairly honest. So <laughs> it's not difficult. It's not difficult to find me. Just, just key Daniel Lacalle and you'll find. And I try to have, I have always two accounts spanish and english for the different languages that my followers prefer very good well we'll be linking those uh ways to follow you down below in the in the 
uh, text that follows this that comes out on our website. So Daniel, thank you again so much for your time today. Uh, let's do this again sometime. Absolutely. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure.